Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking again with Sarah Brosh. Sarah was uh, accused of a hate crime that turned out to be a hoax. It was like the whole napping while black at Yale. Um, I'd spoken to Sarah earlier about the whole incident and I've got her back on now to talk more about sort of the aftermath that happened after the incident and how it all got blown up and then everything that you know mm-hmm. took place after that. Hey Sarah, thanks for coming back on. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. So, well, I guess you know we're we're all locked away now. So, how's uh, how's isolation treating you? <laughs> well, for me, it's it's kind of funny because for me, I well well one of the things that we spoke about when we we spoke the last time was how I was basically living like a, a hermit Rapunzel on Yale's campus for years. Uh, so I'm uh, sort of so- social distancing and self-isolation is kind of the way I roll. <laughs> yeah. So not too not too much is different uh, for me. For me, as long as I I keep I keep joking on um on Twitter and talking about how uh, there's a little corner store just down the street from my apartment building where I live. And so I I go there, and um, as long as my corner store stays open, I'll be fine. Anyways, uh, like I said, thanks for coming back on. And so last time we'd spoken, I mean, you'd gone through pretty much the whole story of what happened at Yale. And I'll post a link to the uh, to Sarah's first episode in the description. So if anyone hasn't heard it, you can go through that. But basically, it was mm-hmm. you know you saw someone in your dorm room in your dorm that wasn't supposed to be there, you reported it. And then you started getting harassed for that. Then a little bit later, you saw someone else who you thought wasn't supposed to be there and you reported that. And then that got blown up and you got accused of racism, this and that. And now you're off campus and you're and you're having to finish your dissertation and everything off campus. You're not allowed back on. Um, that's that's generally the like the basic mm-hmm. wrap up, right? So yes. if you want to go from like what happened after the fact, like, you know, there was all the news stories and everything that came out. But then like after that, like, what's your life been like since this has happened? Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, This truly was, and we already went through it blow by blow, uh, but this truly was a a hate crime hoax, and I was targeted. I was the target of one of the viral living while, quote-unquote, living while black incidents um, and viral videos, which, in fact, uh, was, uh, was a hate crime hoax that didn't take place over a couple early morning hours on May 8th, 2018, but took place, actually took place over months and was the culmination of months of, of harassment, um, and stalking that I was enduring, um, in my isolated dorm room at the top of a tower on Yale's campus. But we already went through that blow by blow. So it's really just, it was really shocking to me and it was shocking to all of my advisors and mentors the way this just within a couple hours just literally exploded um, especially online especially on Twitter and a, a big part of that was that and I've, I've been very vocal and public about this is that I do believe, and I do believe that this, that I have good reason to believe this based on his own tweets, that the race activist Sean King on Twitter, of course, uh, who lately has been the subject of much dragging on Twitter and being exposed by a lot of woke intersectional feminists and social justice warriors themselves as 
as a fraud, basically, is what they're saying about him. Um, and I absolutely believe that he actually participated in the living or napping while black hate crime hoax at Yale based upon his own tweets. Um, I believe that he had spoken with Lolata Siambola and Jean-Louis Renison prior to May 8th, 2018. And I believe he was prepared. I, I believe that she was basically lying in wait for me and was hoping to provoke a reaction from me and was ready to capture me on her iPhone. And I believe that Sean Keen in particular, um, as well as a couple other sites, in particular the Griot, I believe that's how it's pronounced, the Griot, and, um, but Sean Keen on Twitter in particular, I believe he was ready and waiting to distribute that video the moment that it was captured and to propagate it around the world on Twitter uh, to destroy me, to basically to destroy me. Um, and so, so on May 8th, I was, I, I had no, and I know that a lot of people think that this was stupid and naive on my part, and probably it was, but I did not realize that I had even been filmed. I, I had no idea that I had been filmed, and it wasn't, I don't think it was until the evening, and I could go back through my, you know, emails and piece together, try to pinpoint an exact time, but I don't believe it was until the evening on May 8th, 2018, that I even realized that I had been filmed and that this video was being propagated around the world and that I was being, you know, vilified and crucified as something akin to a genocidal villain who was trying to murder black and brown students on Yale's campus via the Yale campus police. Um, and I don't think I even realized this until the evening of May 8th, 2018. So I was, I mean, I still thought, I knew that um, I was very concerned as I knew that, you know, that the Yale campus police had been really belligerent and unprofessional with me uh, while they were there. And uh, the supervisor who came late to the scene and was incredibly hostile towards me, he basically, in not so many words, basically accused me of being a racist and accused me of being the harasser and told me that he was going to report me to Yale Graduate School Dean Lynn Cooley. And I was desperately trying to explain to him on site at the time, no, I'm not the harasser. I'm, please listen to me. I'm the one being harassed. You know, and um, I tried to explain to him that Yale Graduate School Dean Lynn Cooley was completely aware of what was happening. And she had been aware for months and she knew from the beginning that I was the one being harassed, not the harasser that... Um, and that I was entirely innocent and that I was a lifelong human and civil rights activist and a licensed attorney, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, so um, this blew up into, you know, a global public spectacle. Um, I was immediately vilified basically on every news media organizations, outlets, um, 
outlet and uh, in the New York Times and the Washington Post on CNN and MSNBC. It just became a global s- spectacle. Just a, it, it, it was, Did it anyone was really reach out insane. Did anyone reach out to you to get your side of it? So um, I was getting calls from the Yale Daily News and getting emails from them. And at the time, even though this was happening, I still didn't realize it, not fully. And also, I think that because I also just thought, even once I realized what had happened and what was happening, I just thought, who could care? Like, who could fucking care? Like, I didn't understand. I didn't understand the magnitude of what was being done to me and the magnitude of what was happening. Because for me, I i mean, obviously, I knew that I had done nothing wrong. And I knew that I had done nothing racist. And I, of course, I knew I wasn't a racist in any way, shape or form. But also, I just thought, this is video of a woman, an older woman, standing in the doorway of her own Yale dorm, her isolated Yale dorm at two in the morning. And I don't do or say anything racist in the video. And also, so I'm clearly, you know, and I called the Yale campus police. And obviously I, this was, this was a lie that was propagated around the world that I called 911 that, you know, that I was trolling um, the ground, main ground floor common room of my Yale dorm at 2 a.m. for sleeping black people randomly to, you know, call 911 on. I understand the, the false narrative that was propagated around the world, but at the time I didn't realize fully what that false narrative was or, or what exactly was happening. And I just thought, and all of my advisors and mentors at, at Yale thought this too. They just thought, like, this is insane. This is completely insane. Like, who could care if, if some if if a Yale graduate student calls the non-emergency helpline of the Yale campus police, which is which is which is still more or less, you know, Yale campus security and construed as such. And like, who could care? Like, like it, we just it just thought, and this is one of the points I make now, especially now after obviously understanding the full content of the of the video that was propagated around the world. In my mind, nothing could be clearer um, than the fact that that video I'm being targeted because of my mental health disabilities. That video was a campaign to publicly shame me for my mental health disabilities. And that is the video that Lolata Siambula took herself at 2 a.m. on May 8, 2018 of me, you know, standing in my own isolated Yale doorway at 2 a.m., because she just goes on and on and on about how I'm psycho and I should be institutionalized and the Yale administration knows that I'm crazy. Like, and this is something that um, Gretchen Mullen, who's been one of my biggest supporters, that that's something that she has said uh, over and over again on 
on Twitter and elsewhere and on her blog, is that it's very clear in the video that the fact that that I'm a racist comes as an afterthought to Lolata Siambola in the video. Like at first when she's even and I haven't I haven't even myself actually seen all of this because it's really hard and that was that was something last night I I just realized that I had all these emails that I think are really explosive and I probably shouldn't talk about it quite yet. But I didn't even realize I had them. And I've had them for basically, you know, almost two years now. And the the thing is, is that it's really, really, really hard for me to read a lot of this stuff, this garbage, and look at a lot of this garbage. It's really hard for me even now to look at it. And I and I have to, but I can only I can only take it in pieces. But one of the things that Gretchen Mullen, Skeptic Review 89, has been really clear about on Twitter and on her blog is that Lulata Ciambola's biggest concern in the video that she took and propagated around the world, that she took on May 8th, 2018, is that I'm this psycho, right? That I'm crazy, that I'm a psycho, that Yale, you know, knows I'm a crazy and that I should be institutionalized. She even made those derogatory comments about me in front of me at one point, um, which was captured on video in the video that she took. So, so I thought it was so clear that this was a video that I, that was taken to, it was a, to create a public campaign to publicly shame me for my mental health disabilities, that I was targeted for my mental health disabilities, and that, you know, that Lolata Ciambola's bigotry uh, against disabled persons, particularly persons with mental health disabilities, was what was on full display in that video. So all of my advisors and mentors and me, like, we just couldn't quite believe what was happening. And everyone thought, this is insane. Like, this is just completely ridiculous. And this is just going to, everyone thought, oh, this will blow over. At first, they were like, oh, this will blow over in a, in a few hours. Oh, this will blow over in a day. Oh, this will blow over in a couple days. Like, just no one could believe the way it just like snowballed and snowballed on a global scale. Everyone was shocked by it. Um, now, of course, I so so immediately, immediately, and this is something that that Gretchen Mullen points out and has been extremely critical of Yale over. And I think it makes it so clear that the Yale administration and police, they made a decision immediately to throw me under the bus, to destroy me, to scapegoat me, to vilify me, um, to protect themselves. And I think it was very clear that they were trying to protect their own wrongdoing and their own complicity in the in the hate crime hoax, in the living or napping while black hate crime hoax that took place at Yale. And also to protect themselves from legal liability, certainly. So immediately on May 8th, that evening, um, or not even that evening, I think it was that afternoon, Yale Graduate School Dean Lynn Cooley releases an email that she sends to all of the graduate students, which even though she 100% knew the truth and she 100% knew that she was lying, it uh, it 
it basically condemns me as guilty of racial harassment within hours of the culminating incident that took place in the morning of May 8th, 2018. And also something that I want to make sure everyone knows is that Lulata Siambola continued to harass me on the morning of May 8th, 2018, even after the Yale campus police officers left. And for hours afterwards, she was slamming the doors, slamming the elevator door and the um, door to the what is referred to as the 12th floor common room, the only other room on the 12th floor of the tower of the Hall of Graduate Studies, my Yale dorm. So she was just slamming the doors over and over and over again over a period of hours um, on the morning of May 8, 2018. So I sent an email to, well, to everyone, including Yale Graduate School Dean Lynn Cooley, to the Yale administration, to Yale Housing, and to the Yale Campus Police. And that supervising officer that had come late to the scene and had berated me, he responded in an email to me, which I have, and, and, I, and actually the, these emails I have made public, um, they're on my blog, and I've posted links to PDFs of them. And so he uh, responded to me via email, and he told me that that would be documented and included as part of the police report from May 8th, 2018, and it was not. And I have actually submitted a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, for that supplement to the May 8, 2018 Yale campus police report. And uh, Yale requested, there's actually three additional FOIA requests that I made, and Yale requested of the Freedom of Information Act Connecticut uh, Commission that is deciding whether or not they're going to compel Yale to release the Yale campus police body camera footage of me only from May 8, 2018. So they, that decision has not come down yet, and of course it has been delayed because of the corona apocalypse. Uh, so I don't know when that will take place now, but I had submitted subsequently three additional FOIA requests, one of which was for that supplement to the May 8, 2018 police report, and I strongly suspect that it does not exist. Um, it is not included in the copy of the May 8, 2018 re police report that I actually received from the Yale Campus Police Department that was part of the charge letter to me from Dean Slate or Slight, I'm not sure how he pronounces his name, um, that let me know that I was being officially charged with racial harassment by Yale Graduate School Dean Lynn Cooley, which, is, which I received on June 5th. 2018. So um, just to sort of like in a nutshell, let people know. So once I realized the full magnitude of what was happening to me, um, basically on the evening of May 8th, and then on May 9th, especially, uh, I, I was terrified and realized that I needed to get out of my Yale dorm room immediately. And so this will be one of the people that we'll speak about. I wanted to especially speak about the horrifying way I was treated 
by sort of the atheist, skeptical, free-thinking, secular humanist community. So Ijeoma Oluo, who's a quite famous woke intersectional feminist, so she immediately started weighing in on 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 me, um, you know, and how horrible and racist I am. And one of the things she did is she okay, can, I um, just, can I just stop? Yeah. For a okay. Go ahead. So you were talking about having to leave your Yale dorm room, right? And I get all that, like That's I understand. Right. Okay, but then, like, how does like what does that have to do with? like the humanists and the atheists. Like, I, I, I don't get that connection there. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So Ijeoma Oluo, she considers herself also part of the secular humanist community. And so she, um, she posted a tweet to her, you know, 200,000 Twitter followers telling them basically, and of course she said, oh, it was a joke, I was joking. But she basically told them to, you know, stalk me in my Yale dorm room. And so obviously that wasn't the only reason, but that was one of the reasons why I knew I had to get, it wasn't safe for me to stay there. And of course my my dorm was known publicly and was being propagated around the world. And the images of me included my dorm room number was right down the door, you know, and the images and the video of me that was being propagated around the room. And I was already, you know, of course, the death threats were starting to come in and the threats of violence. So um, I, knew, I knew I had to get out of my room. So I basically, I, that, that, I think it was, was it that evening? It was either that evening or the next morning. I can't remember the exact time, but very quickly thereafter, I I moved into a part of my dorm that was actually under construction so that I would be safe. And I had to basically immediately go into hiding on my own campus in my own dorm. So I moved into a part of the dorm that was under construction and uh, so I pretty quickly realized I needed to get off campus immediately. And my one of my advisors, because it wasn't safe for me to go out in public, one of my advisors actually brought me $160 in cash so I could pay the Uber driver who was going to drive me to my surrogate dad's house in Brooklyn. So I immediately fled Yale's campus. And actually, while I was waiting for my Uber driver on the standing on the at the curb in front of my dorm, this group of, you know, presumed um, Yale students approached me. And they started, you know, they stopped when they recognized me, they saw me and they recognized me and they started saying things to me like, you know, they looked like they were they were probably also Hall of Graduate Study residents because they were, you know, that they and they entered the dorm, you know, thereafter and they, they looked like they were headed on their way, but they stopped when they saw me and they recognized me and they were standing there right next to me while I was waiting for my Uber driver to come and get me so I could flee Yale's campus and they were, you know, making horrible comments to me saying, you know, you're done, you're finished, you are so over. Um, and it, obviously it was really, it was really scary. It was really terrifying. And so um, 
so my Uber driver showed up and I just, and we sped away. And so I got to my surrogate dad's house. And so I, I immediately, um, went into hiding at my surrogate dad's house. And basically for more or less for the next month, I was just in their guest bedroom and I was basically either, either drunk or, or unconscious basically the whole month. And a lot of the month is kind of a blur. And I was basically going into literal physical shock sort of every hour on the hour when I was conscious, you know, I would just like convulse and shake and I had chills and I just, I I can't even tell you how many times I almost killed myself. I was just trying basically not to kill myself and, uh, and I was trying to, I mean, it was impossible not to, but I was trying as much as possible not to, you know, read or look at what was happening online and in the press and look at the emails with all the death threats. And I, I didn't really know most of what was happening because I just was either unconscious or I was drunk or I was, you know, just trying not to kill myself. I couldn't eat. I couldn't really sleep. I would basically just like pass out because I was so overwhelmed and, um, and just, I would just go into shock and I, it was just, it was, it was an absolute hellish nightmare that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And one of the things that hurts so much now is that, when people try to like minimize the extent of what was, what was done to me and what I experienced, you know, I just, I don't, I mean, I do understand it. I intellectually, I understand it, but it's just so painful and so hurtful. There's, there's sort of this whole faction, even within the community whom you might construe as being anti-SJW and anti cook cancel culture, et cetera, who just now tried to like minimize the extent of what was done to me and what I experienced. And they tried to tell me, oh, you just need to like, you know, you just need to get over this. Cancel, cancel culture doesn't exist. You know, you can't really be mobbed on Twitter, you know, just turn off Twitter, log off. And, you know, that, you know, oh, you know, it's not, you know, if someone, if someone drags you on Twitter, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not their fault if you're suicidal because you're a psychot, you're crazy. Like it just, or people who just, just are like, just think that I should just get over it, get over everything, not just what was done to me on social media and in the press, but also what was done to me by Yale. Um, and, and people also that think that somehow, uh, it wasn't, this was a hate crime hoax. This was not a living while black incident, but people somehow who, who think that because, because this was about racism and somehow, and this is something that actually I was just discussing with a couple of people on Twitter over the last day or two, 
that somehow it's okay now for people, people of color, and maybe in particular black people, and maybe in particular in the U.S., that because we have such a horrifying history in the U.S. of of actual, you know, lynchings, of actual horrifying Jim Crow um, slavery, of course, but just like even in more recent years, just horrifying incidents and an actual history, an actual history of just the most horrific, despicable, reprehensible racism in this yeah. country. But I mean, that okay. it's okay for for black people to do this to white people now and to falsely accuse. Yeah, them. but that's okay. I mean, that's not just in the U.S. That's that's a lot of places. I mean, this is straight out of the critical race theory, the intersectionality. Right. It's that's straight right. out of all that. I mean, like the 1619 project that's just coming out now. Um, you know, and unfortunately, like New York State wants to use that. I don't know if it's New York State or New York City wants to use the 1619 project as a basis for their history curriculum from K through 12, which is That's horrific. Right. Um, thankfully, there's that uh, uh, 1776 project that started as a counter to the 1619. But yeah, this whole idea that, you know, uh, racism is uh, power plus prejudice, that, you know, you can't be racist towards white people because they're in a position of power. And, you know, it's, it's all such a load of bullshit. And it's... Um, I mean, the whole identity politics thing sucks. And, mm-hmm. you know, doing crap like that, you're going to start white identity politics. And you don't want to start, right. you don't want to start that. I mean, the answer to identity politics is not more identity politics is to, is to have less, but it's just, I mean, it, it goes on and on. And on. I mean, like you're seeing it now too. Like you mentioned the, the, the coronavirus, right? This is a hugely you know, important thing it needs to be dealt with properly and yet you still have articles coming out about how it's you know it shows the systemic racism of the united states and you know they're calling this surgeon general racist yesterday because you know a black guy used uh. a term that he uses in his family for what he calls his mother like give me a fucking break like it's it's off the hinges this stuff is completely off the hinges and that That's whole, right. yeah, okay, you can't be racist because, you know, you couldn't have faced racism because you're white. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. And, like, one other thing that you'd mentioned was that, you know, okay, people were saying, okay, well, why do you take Twitter so seriously? But, I mean, you know, they they covered this on CNN, like you said. They covered it in the New York Times. They covered it in the Washington Post. Like, that's, that's not right. nothing, right? Like, that's not Twitter. That's That's a lot more than that. And then, I mean... I would have to go back and look, but I'm sure outlets like the Young Turks probably made a big deal out of it. I'm sure. Such a big deal. You know, Such like, a big deal. And like, oh, and that's something I want to talk about in the context of the secular humanist community. Yeah. Go ahead. Maybe that would. Maybe that's a good segue. So, um, so if it's okay with you, so one of the things I wanted to sort of, I just, it is such a hot topic right now, uh, and particularly in the context of um, what just went down with this one activist in the secular humanist free-thinking community. And I I'm, I'm may butcher her name, and I believe she uses the pronoun her. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but um, her name is uh, Kevin Sepernathy. Sepernathy? Does that sound right? Yeah, Do you know of whom I'm speaking? Yeah, yeah I think I know who you're talking about. Um... 
with the center from um, the the freedom of in- the CFI, the freedom of inquiry. Yeah. So so well let's well let's talk about um, is it Chank Chank Weir and the Uger, inter- yeah. yeah, yeah. Uger, Uger, yeah. thank you so much. I don't I, like. I, okay, I'm, I'm not. I, I, I'm not 100 sure either. Like, I think it's Uger. It could be Uger. I, I don't. I don't know. I'm not taking a guess here. Yeah. So one of the things that I thought people would be really interested in hearing about is, is in particular, the way I was treated by, as I've mentioned, the secular humanist, rationalist, free-thinking, atheist community, especially online. So I do want to just give a, just a quick a quick background. So I did consider myself very much a member of that community, particularly online. And about a decade ago now, I was actually a fairly popular essayist in that world. And I wrote pieces that appeared in the Humanist Magazine of the American Humanist Association. And I... I was the first legal intern for the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and I considered Annie Laurie Gaylor and Dan Barker, the two co-presidents of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, to be family, basically family, and they absolutely loved me. And for years, uh, they would credit me as the reason why they established a legal internship program and have an in-house legal counsel team. So anyway, so um, just so people know my sort of quick, I'll do a quick nutshell version. So I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, okay? And I do consider the Jehovah's Witnesses a cult, um, I do consider them to be a very misogynistic cult, and uh, they actually, and a lot of people are surprised to learn this, they actually do impose hijab. They don't call it hijab, they just call it a head covering or a headscarf. But they actually do impose hijab on women and girls in certain situations, in certain situations, um, because it's a... Uh, and they're very clear about why they do this. They're very clear about why they do this. And you can see this online on their website. It's to make clear that um, if a wo- that a woman is always subordinate to the men in the congregation and in her family. Um, so, so she puts on the headscarf to make clear that you know that she's you know a, a second class citizen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've actually spoken to. Um... An ex ex you know Jehovah's Witness before, and you know, I, like I, I used to host a podcast a while back, uh, and we were speaking to people from like you know, like they were ex Muslims, uh, ex ex Mormons, ex like Orthodox Jews, um, and then we also spoke with a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, some of the stuff, um, you know, like what there's a hundred and forty four thousand elect or something like that, and they're the only That's ones going right. to get to heaven and. Yeah, the anointed ones. Yeah. So anyway, so just so people understand, so that was my background. I also grew up in a in a really incredibly abusive family, as well. So it was it was it was a good time. It was a good time. (laughs) Childhood was kind of a hellish nightmare for me. So anyway, so I so I basically at the age of eleven. my youngest brother was born at that at that time, and 
uh, he had what's called hemolytic disease, which um, just so people know, the probably the cardinal sin for the Jehovah's Witnesses is blood transfusions. But blood is sacred. Now, in my family, um, the women, my my mother and my sister and I, we all have negative blood, negative Rh blood. And um, my father has positive blood. Uh, and so my two brothers had um, RH negative blood. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because when a woman who has RH, I mean, my two brothers have RH positive blood. Forgive me, excuse me. I think I just misspoke. So um, the reason why I'm telling you this is that when a woman with RH negative blood um, and it's usually the problem happens with the second child that she carries, the second fetus with RH positive blood, because her body has already developed antibodies to the fetus in during the first pregnancy. So that's exactly what happened when my youngest brother Jacob was born when I was eleven. So uh, oh, sorry, he, just, uh, just oh yeah, go ahead. Out, out of curiosity, that like that's what used to be called blue babies, right? Yes, that's right. That's okay. exactly right. Blue babies. Um, and I think part of the reason why they called them blue babies was because they couldn't breathe and because they turned blue. Yeah. And also part of the reason is because um, in particular, O negative blood, which is what I have, is considered blue blood. That's what like, you know. Mm. The royal family, you know, right. in Great Britain has are all O negative, etc. So anyway, that's exactly right. They're called. They were called blue babies. Um, and so anyway, so at and at the time, I think they had just developed the the Rogam shot, which is the shot that they give women now who are Rh negative, so that they won't develop antibodies against. Um, their fetus if they carry an Rh positive fetus. So, but a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses won't take the Rogam shot, even if they do have Rh negative blood. The women, and the reason why is because I do believe they do use blood parts to make the Rogam shot, and so. You know, it, it depends. Some, I think, some Jehovah's Witness, Jehovah's Witnesses, some of this, some of them will take it, some of them won't. My mother didn't take it. I do believe that it was more sort of the beginning when it was available, when my youngest brother was born, but she elected not to take it. Um, and so when Jacob was born. Um, you know, he was, it was an emergency C-section and he almost died and he needed an immediate blood transfusion. And uh, that's why, as I mentioned, blood transfusions are considered basically the cardinal sin for Jehovah's Witnesses, if there is one. And so my parents denied him a blood transfusion. Now, he was taken away by the state and they did save his life and give him a blood transfusion. Um, but anyway, the reason why I'm mentioning this is just even at 11, that was the point at which I basically was just, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. I'm out. I, I mean, obviously, I was only 11, so I couldn't just, you know, leave and at that point and go make a life for myself. But um, Taking my ball and going home. Yep. 
I'm taking my ball and going home. I like that. So basically, uh, I was just like, yeah, I'm done with you assholes. About, And so at that point, it was just about, you know, preparing myself to escape. And I sort of knew even then that the way that I was going to get out was going to be higher education. And so I really just... Um, work to do extremely well in school and prepare myself to get out. And so I uh, ended up going to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, and I got two engineering degrees. And, um, you know, I also knew that, you know, STEM going into engineering was going to be a, a good way to make sure that I could, you know, support myself and be self-sufficient and get a good job. And, so that's what I did. So, um, you know, I have my whole, I have this incredibly crazy meandering life path I won't get into. But anyway, so I ended up um, in my early 30s going to law school at Fordham Law School. And I decided I wanted to be um, a human and civil rights attorney. And I I think that that was pretty much the time at which also I really got into the athe the online atheist uh, human secular humanist free thinking skeptical community and I was really that was sort of the apex of the four you know horsemen of the yeah, apocalypse. I, I, so I was gonna say like <laughs> that would have been like after like Sam Harris's like end of faith and Hitchens and all that right. Exactly. Yeah. So I was really enamored of Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Daniel uh, Dennett, Daniel Dennett, right? Yeah. Daniel Dennett. And uh, so, and I just, I just soaked all of that up. I just, I couldn't get enough. I was really basically a, a very strident I don't know if you, I would want to use the word militant, but <laughs> very strident, not just, you know, secular humanist, but I was, I considered myself, I really sort of uh, was very enamored of, of Christopher Hitchens. And I also like to call myself an anti-religion advocate. And obviously, you know, the a not small part of this was the sort of like horrifying childhood that I experienced in what I consider to be a religious cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses. So um, I became very involved in the, especially the online world of secular humanism and secularism and atheism. And so I started writing these pieces and I got acquainted with Adam Lee of Daylight Atheism and um, Ophelia Benson, and I got acquainted with, um, you know, in particular, Adam Lee. I don't, rem I don't even remember exactly how initially I, you know, he and I, I think probably I just went on his, his website at the time and probably just started commenting. And so we just started probably conversing and corresponding online. And then I ended up, um, you know, writing a number of pieces for him, a number of essays. And I think that's what really kicked off 
my being this, you know, something, something, you know, I just did this of my own volition because of my personal interest in the subject. But I, you know, became something of a of a fairly popular essayist at one point, you know, about a decade ago or so, uh, you know, in that online world. So I was at law school in New York City at Fordham. And I was, you know, getting involved in the online, you know, atheism community. And I was writing essays for, you know, Adam Lee of Daylight Atheism. And I really, like, I don't want to, you know, make this into a bigger deal than it actually is. But I was a not insignificant part of him really growing his brand, you know, so to speak. And this was at the time that he made the move from just his, his, you know, own um, website that he had that was pretty, you know, lo-fi, low-tech. And he made the jump to, is it, Pat? it's Patheos, right? Patheos? Patheos? Yeah. Is that the name of the, is that how you say it? Yeah, there's a blog here, um, Patheos, Patheos, I'm not sure exactly how it Yeah. It's so funny because I always joke with people because now it's so wonderful. I always, I love it so much because you can just go on Google and you can learn how anything is pronounced. <laughs> and I am actually, I'm a philosopher of language and I've actually talked about this in um, my seminars at, at Yale is that uh, is that when I was growing up, you know, and I was growing up in a cult, obviously that is is very anti higher education, and particularly so for women and girls. And I, but I was just this voracious reader as a child, and I just devoured books, and 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 I learned a lot of words um, just by, by reading. And so I knew the words and I knew what they meant, but, uh, you know, in, you know, because I'm quite aged at this point, but, uh, <laughs> back then you didn't have Google, so you could just look up and hear yeah. how words were pronounced. So like a lot of times, like, I won't know even now, like obviously now like much, much less so, but even as a young adult, like people, sometimes people would make fun of me because like. I knew a word and I knew what it meant and I knew how to use it, but I didn't know how it was pronounced because I'd never heard it spoken before. Um, That's a joke I like to make. But anyway, so I was, I can very much considered Adam Lee a close friend. I, I was a very much a not insignificant part of him growing his brand and becoming, you know, something of a, of a, you know, public figure in, in this world and making the jump to Patheos and Patheos and, you know, and that's when he started, you know, writing for, for whichever, you know, news outlets. And, um, and so anyway, and so I was at Fordham law school and I very much considered myself and, anti-religion advocate and I decided that I wanted to take um, this summer fellowship public interest fellowship that I had from Fordham Law School and I wanted to go work for the Freedom From Religion Foundation for the summer in Madison, Wisconsin and work with them and help them and so I actually just called up Annie Laurie Gaylor while I was at Fordham Law School and I said hey 
um, do you want me to come be a free legal intern for the summer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at first she just, she, she was a little wary of me because I don't think this had ever happened before. And so she thought maybe I was, you know, that something, you know, insidious was happening and, and, um, but no, then, I mean, eventually she realized like, no, I was completely legit. So I went and worked for the Freedom from, from Religion Foundation for that summer. And that would have been, that would have been the summer of 2008. That would have been the summer of 2008. And I had an amazing experience with them. I absolutely loved it. And I started writing all of these essays for them. And my essays appeared in their newspaper, Free Thought Today, and online. And I did, you know, a ton of work for them. Um, And so also then, so I, I graduated from Fordham Law School in the spring of 2009. And that was actually the attorney Scott Greenfield on his blog, Simple Justice. He actually just wrote about this. That was the the graduating class um, for whom the the bottom fell out of the legal industry after the recession of 2008. And it was particularly hit people hard like me who wanted to do human and civil rights work because what happened was all the big law firms told all of the summer associates to whom they had made commitments you just go away for for one or two or three years because we don't have any work for you and we'll pay you a quarter or half or two-thirds of your salary and and and, and you go work for some nonprofit or some human rights organization or civil rights organization so this was awesome for the human and civil rights organizations. It wasn't so awesome for people like me who racked up a quarter of a million dollars in federal student loan debt to go to law school because they wanted to be a human rights um, attorney. But anyway, I was actually one of the lucky ones because I went to um, I received a one-year human rights fellowship from my law school, Fordham Law, and I could go work for any human rights organization in the world that I wanted to. And the reason why I'm talking about this, it's going to become an important issue, is that I decided to go work for Nipit Nisumis in Paris, France. And so they're actually now, I think, on their way out, and it makes me kind of sad. So anyway, so... Just in a nutshell, this is a women's rights organization, really fierce, really strident, and they are comprised primarily of women who grew up in the ghettoized, predominantly Muslim immigrant suburbs of around the major cities of France, and it it grew out of the really egregious violence perpetrated on the women and girls in those communities. And so they are predominantly Muslim immigrant women and from those communities. And so they definitely consider themselves, most of them to be Muslim, but they have, they have a platform that is 
uncompromising that women's rights are universal human rights and they're not up for negotiation in any way, shape or form. So they're quite a, they've always been a quite provocative organization and they get accused of betraying and stigmatizing their own communities, of course, and they get accused of racism, of course, even though most of the women who work for that organization come from those communities. And so I had the most amazing experience with them during that year. And they actually, at that time, it was really serendipitous. They actually, that was right when the quote-unquote, what is colloquially known as the burqa ban, was being debated in the French parliament. And um, the Sweeney's, uh, oh uh, yeah, go ahead. What year was that? So that was... Um, that was 2000 and the fall of 2009 is when I would have started with them. And so I came back to the U S in the fall of, of 2010. So that would have been 2009, 2010. So it was the spring of 2010 that, uh, Niputni Sumis was engaging very actively in their pro Burka band, uh, activism uh, that in in Paris, France. So I actually, we all put on these, you know, um, do it ourselves, make it ourselves uh, burkas and marched in front of the French parliament. And I was interviewed by the BBC. I don't, I don't know if it actually mm. made it into the news. So, um, but they also... We did all of these. That wasn't obviously the only thing that that I did with them and that they did. But that's an important point. Um, I also actually, actually, I got hooked up with Phil Zuckerman through the Freedom from Religion Foundation. And he's a sociologist who actually works on secularism and has written a number of books. You're probably familiar with Phil Zuckerman. No idea who he is. No? Okay. Um, and anyway, so, uh, I got hooked up with him. He's a sociologist and I basically just called him up and said, oh, so I want to go conduct a sociological study out in the Banlu, um, you know, the suburbs, the getaway mm-hmm. suburbs of, of Paris where the 2005 and 2007 riots took place. And I want to talk to the women and girls of those predominantly Muslim immigrant communities and ask them about their access to their sexual and reproductive health care and rights. So how do I conduct a sociological study? <laughs> and he was like, you're kidding, right? Um, look, I, 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 oh, I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, sorry, like, I, I don't mean to you know, cut you off on all of this because, like, because I was trying to, like, work with the, the humanism stuff. Like, I know you've done all this, but, like, if we can kind of stick right. a little bit closer to that, because I think we're getting way off on a little right. tangent. Like, we're going to the weeds of something that's kind of, like, I understand what you're talking about, what you've done, but, like, I think, like, if we want right. to bring it back to, like, like okay, like, I'll, I'll, I'll so I was overseas while... You know, Sam Harris wrote End of Faith, all that. I was That's sort of, right. okay, so I I was, watch, and I wasn't even really watching much of it because I didn't have access to YouTube and things like that. It wasn't even a thing when I left. Um, but when I did start watching stuff on YouTube, when it was, you know, when I had more access to it, I was watching science stuff. Like this stuff, you know, I'd read Hitchens stuff in uh, Vanity Fair and things like that. But I started seeing some of it, obviously. You, you watch science videos on YouTube, it leads you to, you know, 
these kind of debates and stuff. So I started watching some of it. I was like, okay, it was interesting, but you know, I'd been an atheist so long. I was like, yeah, whatever. But what I started seeing was the atheism plus stuff. Right. And then that's right. where this whole thing completely devolved. That's and right. And so like, if you that's want to like right. kind of bring this back bring to back. like, you know, like, I mean, like I said, like we can go into like everything you did, but I think that's kind of getting completely off what had happened to you here and let's not focus on what was going on in France or anything like that. Like if you could just talk about the humanist stuff here and what happened That's there right. and then how that went on. Right. So, so this is right before elevator mm. gate. So, um, and just the one other thing I wanted to say, the reason why I mentioned Ni is, is that the one other thing that I did is I started writing pieces that I considered anti-oppression pieces, um, for Jennifer Barty, the the then editor of the Humanist Magazine for the American Humanist Association. And I wrote a couple different pieces, and one piece was um, ended up being, you know, a cover piece. She did an issue on the burqa and on the burqa ban, and she actually asked me to write a piece because of, you know, my activism with Niputni Sumis and because of my pro-burqa ban position. So anyways, so the reason, so I mentioned that, so that was basically, that was everything that I did with the, you know, secular humanism, atheism community. So I was writing these essays that I considered anti-oppression pieces. And so at that point, so I, when I, I came back from France in the fall of 2010, and my life had completely fallen apart because my, while I was in France, my youngest brother, Jacob had committed suicide and I, you know, had came back from France and I had thought that I was actually going to stay in France and make my life there. So I came back and I decided that I needed to, you know, go get a PhD in the Philosophical Foundations of Law. So I decided that I had developed this, you know, what I call my Saving the World Project, which is my which is my PhD dissertation that I'm currently working on. And so I came back from France and my life had taken this complete turn. And it was basically at that point that I basically, I have not really had much contact with that community, that online secular humanist atheist community since then. After what happened to you at Yale, and then what happened with the atheist? Anyway, so after um, the, um, in, as part of the aftermath of, of the living or napping while black hate crime hoax at Yale, so what happened, and this shocked me, is that all of these, you know, secular humanist organizations and activists that had lauded me, that had published what I considered to be my anti-oppression pieces, uh, they basically, they crucified me. They crucified me. They vilified me. It, it was shocking. It was shocking. So in particular, the American Humanist Association, and in particular Jennifer Barty, the still editor of the Humanist Magazine for the American Humanist Association, so she basically, in 2018 and 2019, made a cottage industry out of destroying me 
out of setting me up as this, you know, racist, genocidal villain perpetrator of a hate crime at Yale who had who had been a part of, you know, the secular humanist community whom they had published and they censored my pieces that the essays that I had written for them, they censored them, they pulled them down. They wrote, she wrote, you know, and I haven't even read everything because like I said, it's really traumatic for me and it's really hard for me to look at this garbage. But she wrote um, whole, you know, essays about what a horrible person I am. And basically she disowns me. She says that she wasn't really this. And, and basically this is, it's all a complete lie. It's nothing but lies. I considered her a mentor. She mentored me. She was, she asked me to write those pieces. She was incredibly involved. Um, I actually hated the title for the Burka Bam piece. Um, she actually pushed me to be more provocative when I wrote those essays. Um, she was, she loved them. They were so proud of those pieces. They were so proud of their affiliation with me. Um, you know, they thought I was basically awesome. And so after the hate crime hoax took place at Yale, it was, she basically just lied through her teeth, wrote these essays in the humanist magazine about how basically like, you don't know me, <laughs> you know, it was just like, it was insane, basically saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not responsible for her racism, um, I, you know, I wasn't really that involved, yeah, sorry we published these pieces, and actually removed them, and this is the thing that just, like, blows my mind, is that recently, very recently, she just wrote an essay for an a whole issue that the humanist magazine just did on blasphemy laws. And she just wrote this essay about or the Orwellian censorship of free thinkers. And they recent, pretty recently gave an award to Salman Rushdie. And I'm just like, okay, but I mean, uh, I'm going to put a little, I'm going to give you a little bit of pushback there. Not because I think you're, you're saying Salman Rushdie doesn't deserve the award. Like, Right, that's obviously, right. Obviously, he does. It's. I think you're like trying to point out their hypocrisy here, right? Like, that's I don't, exactly I don't, I, I, what I, I, I'm doing. I, I shouldn't want to even say pushback because, I mean, if anyone deserves a reward for free speech, it's Salman Rushdie. <laughs> you know? That's right. Yeah. That's right. But, but in terms of like compared to what, to what, what Jennifer Barty and the American Humanist uh, Association and the Humanist Magazine did to me. You would think, given what they, in the context of what they did to me, you would think that they would be giving an, a posthumous award to the Ayatollah Khomeini for issuing the fatwa against Salman Rushdie, yeah. not Salman Rushdie. But, I just... But that's just it. Like, all these associations, like, okay, you know, there's better, some are better than others, but whatever. But every one that I've seen that's got humanist in the title... And again, obviously, this is only the ones that I've seen. It's by you know no means an exhaustive list. Uh, probably nowhere near anywhere close. But they've all got this, uh, you know, social justice bent to them. That's right. You know. That's right. Uh, like the, there's one in Canada, the BC Humanist Association. They're you know, they might as well be, you know, holding those dinners that tell white women how awful and racist they are. Like, That's like right. you know, it's, 
and then depending on the atheist association or the atheist group you know there's varying degrees of it like even patheos some of those people that write in there um they are super woke and you know it's they don't realize that they're acting like religion. Like they don't realize that they're committing. They have their they have their own blasphemy laws. They have their own okay. shibble, they have their own shibboleths. They have that yeah. is exactly right. Mm. Yeah, I was basically I I was ousted as a heretic. I was ousted yeah. as a heretic, yeah. and they had to oust me because they had lauded me. They had published me. You know, I was one of them. I had, you know, I was part of the inner circle. And so now they they had to like, this is actually something that this is like in my work in social philosophy. This is I have kind of a I have this theory of, of what punishment really is. And like they had to punish me. Okay, like but, they had to crucify me. But isn't that kind of weird? Like you're a Jehovah's Witness, and I, I can't remember the term that Jehovah's Witnesses use for people who leave Jehovah's Witnesses. It's like backslider or something like that. I heard something along those lines. Uh, you disfellowship them. Yeah, yeah. but disfellowship. But I mean, the, like what you're what you're experiencing with these people is the exact same thing, right? Exact you know? same and, thing. And it's okay, like deleting your articles. Um, now, one minor version of that was. James Franco, he did something stupid and he said something about, I can't remember exactly what it was. Like there's something to do with a 16 year old girl. I don't know if there was sex involved or if it was just naked pictures, but whatever, it was wrong. Right. So he'd just been on a cover of Vanity Fair or something like that with, along with a bunch of other people, the, they reissued that, that release that the, you know, they, they re-released that issue and they took him off the cover. Um, there, there was Garrison Keeler who got caught up in the Me Too thing. Right. They deleted all his back catalog, and then quietly, two years later, they put it back on after they got a new host for it so that, you know, they didn't even let people know that. So, like, they tried to make him an unperson. Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, when Lawrence Krauss got... And Lawrence Krauss, there's a lot of credible stuff against him. And, I mean, I spoke to him. I don't want to, like, you know, I'm not trying to throw shade his way, but there were people saying that, oh, we should... Uh, get rid of all his scientific uh like like all his stuff that he he did in the name of science I mean, right you know like this this need to like okay cancel you and make sure you never work again but also just just like erase your entire past like i mean right. they are puritanical they are it's crazy dogmatic they are acting yep. like a religion they you know they they shun you. They they kick you out. They like you said. You, you're a heretic. You're a blasphemer. You're you know you, you yep. You, you know like I'm an apostate. Exactly. And like yo, uh, what is it? Uh, narrow is the way that leadeth into life, right? Yeah, that's you know, like, right. <laughs> it's like so they have they follow that narrow path. Like in Islam, they talk about the Sirat al-Mustaqim, which is the the narrow path that you follow. And it's a straight path that will lead you to heaven because on all sides are it's temptation and sin, right? So that's what they're 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 walking that narrow path. They have to be on that that's path. Right. It's just they're crazy. That's right. You have to be on the woke intersectional feminism dogma path. And if you stray even a hair, if you stray even a hair from that dogma, you know, then you you will be you will be ousted as yeah. as an apostate, as a heretic, and they have to Basically, that, they really just tried to, they 
set up a cottage industry. It was a campaign. It was a campaign on their part to destroy me. They wanted to destroy me. It was, I, it's it's really, it's sort of ineffable. Like it's it's really hard to explain what it's like to be the target of something like that. It's really, it, it's all, it, it's, if it, if it hadn't actually happened to me, it would be unimaginable. It's just, they were acting exactly like the Jehovah's Witness cults or like, cult or like any other cult you're exactly right you're exactly right there it's a woke uh i like to call it a cult because i think that's exactly what it is it's a cult it's a it's a it's the woke intersectional feminism social justice warrior cult yeah i mean okay like i've spoken to uh, james Lindsay a couple of times and i've spoken to uh, uh, someone i've met on twitter and she actually self-described sjw you know uh, like they they use the term woke and it was a term of pride with them for a while but yeah i mean like it's um okay you were jehovah's witness but i don't know how much you know about calvinism I, I like i know that uh this like the idea in calvinism of uh, total depravity i'm not sure if that's in jehovah's witness but i know like some mormons talk about it i also know like the westboro baptist church talked about ideas of total depravity but the woke stuff is like that like if you look at it through the critical race lens you know racism is the total depravity of the system if you look at it through the intersectional feminist lens it's the patriarchy mm -hmm. or misogyny right mm -hmm. um that's right and it's that's right it, like this stuff and you know the, the i think part of the problem is all these associations that popped up and it's not really like i have friends who started one up and i think what they're trying to do is really great they're they're focusing on education for kids in like you know africa and india and places like that it's awesome right, right? great and there are some that are good and they're you know you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. but a lot of these things like making a group and making the identity based on something you don't believe in is hard to do and so then they mm -hmm. you know yeah you're like-minded people you can get together and talk but to make a formal group you know then they came out with that atheism plus so it's like okay now we're going to believe in this and that's where it like no like the whole thing was about being free thinking and looking for evidence but once you start bringing on a belief system that's you, you screwed it all up that's right that's exactly right and so um one of the reasons why earlier in our conversation i had mentioned um ichioma oluo mm -hmm. who's a very strident woke intersectional feminist has written you know books and uh, has quite a following, is that um, after the Living or Napping While Black hate crime hoax at Yale, she was given a Feminist of the Year Award from the American Humanist Association at their convention in May 2018 um, by Jennifer Barty. And so then afterwards, I think a, a few months after that, um, the American Humanist Association and Jennifer Barty published her speech in the Humanist magazine, and it was off the hook. It was so crazy. It was so insane. So a lot of the speech was about me. <laughs> um, and so so what Ijeoma Aluo actually said in there is that, and I just want to let people know, um, and you can still find my pieces, these essays that I wrote a decade ago that I consider anti-oppression essays. You can still find them online. 
Um, and actually, someone was just, um, David Osorios was just posting them, and Gretchen Mullen has posted them. And actually, Gretchen said that I should go ahead. There's some national organization about censorship, and that it asks people to report instances of censorship. And so um, David Osorios said that he was going to go ahead and, and post my essays with them and let them know what had happened. So these essays... There is absolutely nothing racist about them. There is, I, 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 sw I swear to God. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that, that's where that's oppression essays. It's that's crazy. where you're wrong. Was... I'm, I'm sorry, but that's where you're wrong. Everything is racist. Everything is racist. <laughs> and if you deny that everything is racist, that's just proof of your racism. So I'm sorry. I know that's right. Yeah, that's like, right. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's that's that, that's what it is, though, right? Like that. Everything is racist. If you it, it, actually read these essays, like there is nothing racist about them, and like the 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 the, the con, you know the the convoluted you know acrobatic exercise that people went through to twist these entirely not racist essays into something ugly and racist boggles the mind. Okay, you know what? And that's here, why they here, had here, to take them uh, down. I've read enough critical race theory that like. Without even having read these essays, okay, I haven't read them. I'll I'll, <laughs> gi I'll give you an example of why they're racist. You are not a person of color. You are telling the stories right. of the person of people of color in your own voice. You're drowning out their voices. You're not letting their voices come out, be spoken by a person of color. Right. Therefore, you are putting a white tinge on it, and that's racist. And if I mean, if they want, it's it's not hard to do. Like it's like you know, right. if if you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. These people, like, you know, they use the hammer of critical race theory, and every problem is racism. Everything is racism. Mm. All roads lead to racism. It's it's not... Once mm. you start reading these books, like, I've I've read so much of this stuff now, and, um, like, I've read five... I've read three books on critical race theory. I've read two books on intersectionality. I've read one book with the, what they call the 25 leading papers that came up with critical race theory. I've been reading papers and articles either about or like either critiquing or the actual papers themselves from like all these fields for the last 18 months. This stuff is insane. Like this stuff is insane. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's just, it's not normal. Like it, it is, it, it's, Sorry, I, I just didn't mean to wrap Oh, there. no. Please, please, please bust. Please bust in because you you actually probably know. You actually, even though, you know, I was in that SJW world, even though I considered myself, you know, a reformer from within and a deeply committed civil libertarian, you probably have read more and know more of the critical race theory than I do, I think. You, you probably know more. So please, please, please bust in. And actually, you can, you can, because I was just, I didn't really understand all of this that you're talking about when this was happening to me. So I was just like, I just felt like I had entered like an, an alternative universe. I was in like this hellish nightmare episode of the Twilight Zone. I was like, what the fuck is happening okay, well, I didn't know I'm just gonna give a little shout out to James Lindsay like I spoke with him recently and I'm gonna put that episode out tomorrow but um you should as well and if everyone else whoever's listening go to newdiscourses.com 
And it's a site mm-hmm. that James has started. And basically what he's doing is like all the work that him, Helen, and Peter have done. Um, all right. the interviews they've done recently. Plus he's also starting, he's calling it like a, he's like the, the translation from the wokish. And he's giving a list of terms that, that have been co-opted, new terms. So like, you know, the term anti-racism and how they just define racism. And he links to like all the papers, he links to books. He he does like, he does an amazing job. So if, if some of this stuff doesn't quite make sense, go to the new discourses site, check out that dictionary. Like, and there's plenty of stuff in there. There's articles, there's videos, there's all kinds of stuff. It's basically uh, a, a how to, like, you know, it, it's for the, you know, it's like, think of it like a National Geographic and they're they're studying a a, a weird tribe, remote tribe somewhere. Right. You know, like right. he, he's done the Jane Goodall and Gone with the the, the gorillas. <laughs> you know, like uh, and like he's he's written about them, like 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 because he's like him and Helen and Peter have studied this stuff for like the last two years and they've read so much about it. Um, right. So yeah, I mean, like honestly, like, go to New Discourses, uh, check that out. You'll probably find a lot of information and probably like learn some stuff you hadn't known before. Right. Well, and one of the things this this was the I I really do think that this was like the creme de la creme of the woke crazy, like the one essay. This was like the biggest issue for everybody, and it was splashed everywhere. You know, New York Times, Twitter, everywhere. So in this one essay, I'm talking about something that happened to me as a little girl. I'm talking about um, in a Wisconsin public middle school in like the mid, you know, in the late 80s, mid to late 80s. And I had a mandatory assignment where we actually had a debate on slavery. We had a debate on slavery and I was assigned the pro-slavery side of the debate and we won our debate. Now, in this one essay, I talk about this, and I am not talking about it as something good, <laughs> like, yay, I wanted a debate on slavery, and I'm talking about something that happened to me when I was 11 or 12, and I'm talking about a mandatory public middle school assignment in the, in the late 80s in Wisconsin, and I'm just describing what happened to me. Uh, Do you? Oh, you know. You yeah, okay, know but, what happened. Yeah, but they, they, like, but here's the thing, right? They won't care about those facts. They'll just take that one thing. I want to debate saying why slavery is good or whatever, right? They'll forget the fact that you're 11. They'll forget the fact that you're assigned that. Um, you know, and maybe it was wrong of the school to assign 11-year-old something like that because you know they're 11. Right. Um, but there was a. I, I'm trying to remember if he was a politician or an author, but. Uh, I can't remember exactly what he did, but the guy was in the UK and he wrote an article in jest and as a piece of satire about why he was either called himself, Oh, why I'm a racist or why I'm a Nazi. Mm-hmm. And then he got, and it was dra- satire. Yeah. Yeah. And he got dragged and canceled for that. And this was maybe in the last five or six years. So it's, it's the same kind of thing. Like, like I said, they don't the care. Thing. They do not care whatsoever, and they're just like, oh, look at this. He's admitting it. He's a racist, and no one That's right. bothers to read the article. They just look at the headline, and so if they take that one little quote out of your thing, like, oh, I want to debate defending slavery, right? You know, it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't say that you're 11 years old. It doesn't say that it was assigned by the school, and like most people will see, okay, they were probably got mad at the school for assigning that to kids, but 
whatever. I mean, like, you know, that's neither here nor there now. I mean, like, but yeah, they, 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 they don't care about facts. They only care about what fits their narrative. That's exactly right. You just hit the nail on the head. Do you know how many people called me a slavery apologist <laughs> who still call me a slavery apologist? Joyce Carol Oates, the author Joyce Carol Oates, <laughs> tweeted to her, you know, I don't know how many follows, followers she has, 500,000 or something. She tweeted that I'm a slavery apologist. Oh, good Lord. It's, it's insane. It's insane. So at this, um, so when when uh, this speech that Ijeoma Oluo gave, when she was getting this Feminist of the Year Award from the American Humanist Association, and most of her speech is about me, right? So she actually says in this speech that she would have known a decade ago upon if she had read my essays, my decade-old anti-oppression essays, she would have known a decade ago that in 2018 I was going to perpetrate racial harassment at, you know, at Yale. And she basically said her, her speeches. So what a lot of these woke intersectional feminists did, and, uh, and I'll be honest, particularly, um, you know, black women and particularly, uh, yeah, women of color, but especially in particular black women who are woke intersectional feminists, so what they did, and in particular within the secular humanist community and at organizations that had published me with whom I had been affiliated. So they saw this, you know, as a golden opportunity. So a lot of them, um, and, and the ones at the American Humanist Association, of course, Ijeoma Oluo, but also someone named Siki, Sikivu Hutchinson, and Mandisa Thomas in particular, those mm. two, they were the ones that were two of the women that were on the cover that of that issue that was basically all about, you know, destroying me, my life, and my human rights career of the Humanist Magazine, of the hum American Humanist Association that was a couple months after May 2018. So what a lot of these woke intersectional feminists did, and particularly women of color, is then they saw this as a golden opportunity to elevate themselves, to elevate their careers, to elevate their profiles, and to compel these secular humanist associations and atheist organizations that had been affiliated with this, you know, gen racist genocidal villain Sarah Brosh. Now you need to, you need to receive absolution from me, and the way you can get absolution from me is to put me on the cover of your magazine. <laughs> but I mean, okay, it's 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 like a pyramid scheme, except you know, instead of like, oh, well, here you go, Sarah, sell my products, and if you get two people to sell them, you get money from them, and if they get two people to them, it's like, here, I'm just going to cancel people, and if for every two people I cancel, I get to move up a step, right? It's it's, it's that's a, right. It's, but I had a question for you because you that's studied right. law, and yeah. now, like Derek Bell's paper, which you can arguably say is the foundation of critical race theory, came out in '79, I believe. And he's from Harvard Law. Now, uh, Crenshaw was teaching at Columbia, but she was in Harvard Law when she wrote mm -hmm. uh, Mapping the Margins. A lot of this stuff comes out of law schools. And there's a there's a saying I've heard out of the critical race theory and the intersectionality stuff where it's, if it's technically right, it's still right. So that 
you know, yes, there's racism in America, so therefore everything is racism. Yes, there's racism in America. That's technically right. Right. You know, right. You know, and that the whole thing, like, you know, technicality is a soul of the law, right? Like, I'm just wondering, is there some reason why a lot of this stuff came out of law schools, or did you see it when you were in law school? Like, I just, I'm just curious about that. Well, um, you know what? It's interesting because, well, I went to law school between um, 2006 and 2009 and I was in you know I was definitely on like the human and civil rights and public interest side so I would definitely would have been on the side where the you know SJWs were but this was not you know I I know that you know I mean I'm you know it it was sort of you know probably percolating a little bit and getting going but this, yeah, you know, this was not, um, this didn't really, this really didn't explode until after that. It basically, this whole thing, not just the atheism plus, you know, that exploded right after I basically, yeah. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't walk away from the atheism community. It's just that I got completely engrossed in education and in my, I had, I had developed this saving the world project that I was going to go create. It was going to go develop. So I basically, that's what my whole life became about. And so I just didn't have any time to be involved anymore. So basically and, and also the woke intersectional feminism, the social justice warriors, it all really exploded right after I left law school, right after I yeah. sort of like okay. left the atheism community. Like, like I, I've kind of watched the timeline of this and I've, again, just from speaking with people and, you know, just looking at it and, you know, tinfoil, I'm fully ready to admit that this is, this could be Alex Jones tinfoil hat level nonsense right like mm -hmm. this is my little theory but i spoke to a couple of people and they think it kind of tracks out uh like this stuff like i said bell's paper was i believe 79 uh crenshaw's paper was like 84 mm -hmm. and then like this stuff started building up um you had feminist studies first and then you had i think some race studies but you didn't get the first real uh, graduate students and doctorates come out of this stuff like they weren't fields in and of themselves they were subdivisions of humanities and so you didn't have people graduating with doctorates and masters until about 2000 and that's when you got these people going yeah. into uh middle management level administration level positions they were going back into universities they were going back into faculty that's right. and so then like it, then it did they just like they started growing like a cancer i'm, I'm sorry i call that's them a right. cancer because that's what they are they that's go inside right. to eat it out and so by 2013, when this stuff started really blowing up, right. you know, you've had two or three classes of these people graduate, come back into government, into administrations of universities, into academia, into the colleges of education, into all these things. So yeah, in 2013, that's where you see, okay, well, they came in, two, right. they came in 2000 as interns and as, you know, lower level management, whatever. After 13 years, they've got some power and they're really exercising it. And that's where I think you just start seeing it go crazy. And there was more of it being taught on schools. And social media was going nuts. And I think it's just, everything just went like, it was like, you know, like one thing after another. Just, I mean, there's not one single thing. Like people try to, I think there's like so many multiple different facets that all came to a head around that time. And I, I think you're exactly right. And I do think that um, sort of the timeline that, uh, 
John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff present, where they really pinpoint 2014 as being a pivotal year. And there are reasons why they think 2014 is so pivotal, but it's sort of for exactly the same reasons that you mentioned. Like, you know, these people were, were young people and it took time for them to, you know, to develop their positions and to attain positions of power. And, it, and they really pinpoint 2014 as the year when this really just explodes. Um, in Appar- not just graduate yeah. in graduate schools, but also under at the undergrad level. Okay. Well, apparently, like I haven't read this book, but um, a book by uh, Christina Hoff Summers, "What Happened to Feminism?" Apparently, she kind right. of chronicles that as well in, in that book. That's right, and you know what? And at the time, I think I probably didn't fully realize the extent to which this was pushed back from social justice warriors and woke intersectional feminists. But I, I did my terminal MA in philosophy to be able to go to a, a really good PhD program. And of course, I ended up at Yale. And I did that from um, 2011 to 2014 out at San Francisco State University. And I really had a hard time out there because they didn't want me to work on, you know, the project that I went out there to work on. Now I got insulated. It was a really, it was really hard for me. I got a lot of pushback, but I held strong. Now I did get insulated, um, because I, um, was working with, Bas von Frossen. Now, you pr- you probably don't know that name, but nope. in the philosophy world, he's, you know, kind of a superstar. He's a philosopher of science in particular. So anyway, so he's a, a professor still out at San Francisco State University. So while I was out there getting my terminal MA, he basically... Um, saw what was happening to me and that I was struggling to, you know... Um, work on my project and he took me under under his wing and basically shepherded me and um, and so I was insulated because I was protected by him he didn't mean and he believed in my project and he believed in my work and he really was probably the main reason why I got into Yale because he's you know in the philosophy world you know he's a rock star he's a superstar um and so he called up you know the the professor at Yale and said you know you have you you need to take Sarah you know um and and so so and then and then I you know um was being shepherded and was being protected by um by the faculty um my advisors and mentors at Yale so i i think that i i didn't i don't think i really i connected so much the 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 struggle that i had at San Francisco State University with the social justice warrior culture and climate on being on the rise and and taking over but now in retrospect especially given you know this conversation that we're having right now i really do think that 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 is i do think that that was a strong element of what was happening to me and i just didn't realize it fully yeah well i joke i joke that I'm not sure it's a it's a good thing I didn't really understand what humanities graduate education is all about before I decided to go get a PhD. I joke about this and actually I was just I was filmed uh, you know however long ago a few weeks ago several weeks ago by um, 
this production company called Sea Line Films, and they're making a documentary about the, you know, the living while black, you know, nine one one calls. And yeah, I was, I, I, I was uh, wearing. Uh, sorry, I was going to ask you about that because you, you were you've done yeah. that one. Is that your second one about this, or is that the first one? Because I, I I've seen you tweet out about that a couple of times. Yeah, um, that's the only that's the only film project that I that I've done. Um, I'm really excited about it. I was wary of them at first because it seemed to me like another, you know, um, entity that wanted to, you know, villainize me. But actually, um, through multiple conversations, and they actually went out to, oh, well, this is might be what you're thinking of. They, they actually just showed up at the Connecticut Freedom of Information Act Commission hearing that took place on November 4th, 2019 in Hartford, Connecticut. They just showed up and they filmed it. <laughs> and then I spoke with them afterwards and that, um, and then I had, I still was wary, but I had multiple conversations with them. And at this point, I really love and trust them. And I know that they're going to, you know, represent me accurately. And I think that this is going to be an amazing opportunity for me to get the truth out about what really happened. Um, so now they have done a couple other documentaries. And their whole thing is that they want to present the truth of and the humanity of all the people involved involved in whatever whatever the subject matter is that they're covering and their first documentary was about his family and upbringing and childhood and it's called family affair and it is really and i haven't I, i've seen snippets of it i haven't watched the whole thing but it's about when he was a child he accidentally shot his sister and there he's black he's a chico colvard he's a he's a, a black man i think i think mixed race but he but he's he's a black man and so he he accidentally shot his sister in the leg i believe and then she but she was a little girl they were children and she thought she was gonna die and then because she thought she was gonna die she told her brother that their father had been sexually abusing her and her their other sister and so then it's about this whole everything that they went through as a family thereafter. And I believe that their father ultimately ended up going to prison. But then it's also about, you know, how I believe at least one of his sisters still has a relationship with their father. And it's about it's just about how complicated trauma, especially within families, can be. And, and how complicated, you know, those relationships can be. And this is something that, you know, really speaks to me because, of course, I, as I've mentioned, I grew up in a very abusive family, physically, sexually, emotionally abusive. And, it, and, and well, both of my brothers are, are deceased now. Um, and I just, my last remaining living sibling is my sister, who's two years older than me, my sister, Rachel. And so, but it, it's interesting to me because, you know, even within a family, you know, you, you, as children, when you suffer abuse, it, it is really, it's, it's so complicated. And the, the way that people respond to trauma like that is so individual. And like my sister still has a relationship with our parents. I don't, I haven't, I haven't spoken or seen them for over 25 years at this point, but, um, uh, spoken to or seen them. 
but uh, but she still has a relationship, and I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't begrudge her that I'm not upset with her at all. I just, I it just, it just, I understand so fully, just as which is the subject matter of this documentary that Chico Clovarden and Sea Line Films did called Family Affair about his childhood and his family, that people just have such you know, idiosyncratic ways of responding to that kind of trauma. And so I just think you have to do whatever makes you feel better and whatever helps you heal, you know? And so, but yeah, it's, it's a fascinating subject. It's a fascinating subject. So I feel very strongly that, um, and so obviously if he's someone who wants to capture in his work, the humanity of his own father, who, you know, um, I believe went to prison for sexually abusing his two sisters and captured the humanity of his sisters, at least his one sister, I believe at least his one sister still has a, a, a close relationship with the father. You know, if he's if he's willing to look at the fully human picture of, of, of that kind of experience, then I feel very strongly that they're going to, you know, represent me. Um, fully and accurately and faithfully. And so I feel very comfortable with them. And I feel like this is going to be just an incredible opportunity um, for me. And, and it, apparently it's going to be ultimately on either HBO or PBS. I think they're independent lens series. Mm-hmm. So I will get huge exposure and I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I think that, it, that, you know, it'll just give me so much credibility being part of this project. And I think it's going to be a really fantastic opportunity to get the truth out. Well, okay. Since we touched on that, I was just going to ask you, um, what next for you? Like, I know you're working on your dissertation. Um, I mean, I I guess obviously like right now, all that's up in the air because of, you know, COVID-19 and all that. But do you have any, like, I, obviously it's, you know, you've had to deal with this for a couple of years, but have you had a chance to think of, okay, after my dissertation, you know, after your defense and all that, like any plans or like, what are your, what what are you thinking about? Like going, going forward? Have you changed your mind about, you know, kind of law you want to do or anything like that? Or honestly, I, I just don't, I just don't know. I just, I just don't know. And I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, take this day by day. I, I still, I still hope, I still feel that I'm in the throes of trying to obtain justice. I do feel very strongly now that, um, and I know that this is something you wouldn't subscribe to, but I do, I do feel very strongly, and maybe this, I just tell myself this because, you know, it's a coping mechanism and it helps me, it helps me, it helps me deal with what's happened to me. But I feel very strongly, I have this sense of, of having been meant to, you know, really endure and barely survive this hellish nightmare because I really feel a sense of mission and purpose now in that. I really want to restore civil liberties on college campuses in particular and everywhere, um, uh, including due process and free speech, including, um, like you mentioned, um, Title IX and the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement. And um, there have been, you know, horrific violations of the due process rights um, of, of men in particular under under bogus Title IX, you know, disciplinary actions on 
on college campuses in particular across the U.S. And so I really feel like, you know, because what happened to me, I was falsely accused of and and basically prosecuted on the campus, on the campus. Um, it was a campus disciplinary action, but basically uh, prosecuted. Do, do you mind if I just interrupt for one second? Yeah, I just want to mention about, uh, about the Title IX. It, first of all, if you don't know what it is, look into it. It's, it's a series of regulations, and I think it was started by Obama, but anyways, you can look into it. Right. But there was a woman named Laura Kipnis, and Laura, if, by any stretch of the right. imagination, she is left of center. You know, right. Uh, she probably would have voted for Bernie. But she, she was concerned about Title IX, so she started an investigation of Title IX, and her investigation of Title IX launched a Title IX investigation against her. So if you're if you're worried about civil liberties, you're worried That's about right. censorship or anything like that, something like that should worry you. Like, you know, if you think there's something wrong with your legal system and you're looking into it, you shouldn't be charged by your legal system for looking into it. And that's exactly what happened at the at the universities when she was looking at a Title IX. So, sorry, I, I didn't want to digress, but I just want to give a little background oh, on Title IX. Oh, no. That is a great point. And um, are you familiar with, um, I might butcher his last name, but um, and I believe he's at the University of Utah. I believe that that's correct. But are you familiar with Nick Wolf, Wolfainer? Wolfainer? Uh, I follow him a bit on Twitter. I yeah. don't really know him. The um, same kind of thing that happened to Laura Kipnis happened to him. Okay. And he's he's spoken out about it a lot yeah. as well. Um, he was also subject to a title. He's a faculty member who was subject to a Title IX disciplinary action that was that was completely bogus. And he talks about a lot about ultimately he ended up being OK and, and um, more or less, more or less. Of course, it was, you know, it was a horrible it was a horrible experience for him. And he ended up spending, I think, Ten or fifteen thousand dollars, you know, on attorneys fighting it, and yeah, he went through kind of the same thing. But I know what happened uh, to Laura Kipnis, and it is—it's outrageous. Yeah. It's outrageous. No, but okay, but when you mentioned uh, uh, Nicholas, there, um, sorry, I'm, I'm bad with names. Uh, there was a there's a guy named Mark Stein in Canada, and he wrote a book. In the book. He quoted directly some mullah in uh, Norway, right? He, he directly mm -hmm. quoted him. He got brought up on human rights charges by the Canadian Human Rights Council, the BC Human Rights Council, and the Ontario Human Rights Council for directly quoting someone. Now, he won. It was thrown out by the Canadian Human Rights Council. At that point, the Canadian Human Rights Council had almost a 100% conviction rate, which is like, you know, crazier than like Saddam Hussein or the Chinese regime or whatever, like they don't even have hundred percent right. and the other two threw it out. But you know, what he said was it's the process is the punishment. So, you right. know, that's right. Even if you are vindicated further down the road and you know, you can take civil action or whatever, right? Like I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I wouldn't begrudge you if you did, but it doesn't give you back the two years of your life that were, Take it away right. from you and take it away from you in a very horrific manner. Like what you went through, you know, even if you're acquitted, like, you, like, I'm not saying, you know, like, hopefully you are found, you're completely exonerated. You won't be in the minds of certain people. Like you have right. to go through all that. Never. And, you know, like I said, you know, I don't, I don't know yeah. if you would or whatever, but like, if you did take civil action, I, like I said, I wouldn't begrudge you because these people made your life a living hell. And it's, you know, right. but like, and then if take them, to, you know, if you take civil action, then you have to like kind of relive it again. 
and you have to go through all that again just to like get some sort of recompense which at the end of it it might take like four years and it's is it really worth the four years you know like like like, like i said it's the whole thing is nonsensical and it's i should i don't want to say nonsensical because i don't want to make light of it but like you know it's there is no due process. It's surreal. Yeah, and it's, it's yeah. surreal. And it's okay. I'm gonna rant a little bit here. Um, like, like what, what's going on with the COVID? And I don't want to make like I know that one doesn't really have to do with the other. Uh, all these people are like, oh my God, uh, they're taking away civil liberties, and it's like, okay. If the government actually had a plan, I don't think either the Canadian or the American governments had proper plans in place. I think our government did a little bit better than yours, um, especially our provincial governments. But if they had a plan in place saying, okay, you know what? We need tests. We need ventilators. We need masks. We're asking you to stay home for whatever. It shouldn't be that long. It should have just been like, oh, four weeks or six weeks or whatever. We're going to get all these things built. We're going to, you know, we're going to go purchase them. We're going to buy them. We're going to turn factories to make them. I think people would have gotten out. But now, like, because it was so badly handled, everyone's like, oh, I, I'm going to go to my church because it's my right to assemble. I'm going to go to spring break. Uh, oh, you're taking away my civil liberties. It's like, no, they're asking you to stay home. And if if you want to see them taking your civil liberties away, you know, China coming in and welding the door shut. Or there was that one out of Philadelphia yesterday where there was, and, and the cops really badly handled this. They were dragged oh, some I guy off the bus. That. Okay. Yeah, like, that okay. was that was intense. Uh, okay, that civil liberty is being taken away, but right. you know, it's the same thing here with the the Title Nine, like anything that happens, it's it's civil liberties being taken away. That's and, right. And it's you know, like I, I I I'm not a big fan of hers. The one thing I liked that she was doing was trying to do some Title Nine reform with Betsy DeVos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Again, I, I don't like some of the way she's doing it, but you know, straight away, all universities because it's coming from or the universities I've seen it because it's coming from Betsy DeVos and it's coming from the t- Trump administration, they're just right. They're dismissing it wholesale. They're not even looking at it, and it's right. You know, like if you're worried about civil liberties and you're worried about all these things, oh my God, the government's using using the virus to take away our rights. Yeah, I, I'm worried about some of those things, especially up in Canada. Uh, our government's trying to do a couple of pull a few few fast ones, but like worry about what's going on in your campuses. Worry what's going on. That's right. You know, like where they're teaching people. What's worrying? What's going on in your elementary schools? They're teaching critical race theory to kids. They're, they're they're teaching kids in New York City that being on time, and I'm talking about pre-K kids in New York City that being on time right. is acting white. Okay, like it's not yeah. normal. Sorry, rant over. <laughs> oh no, I love it. I love it. Yeah, go for it. Go mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. Um and uh. And and I think you probably saw what just happened when Alyssa Milano just came out in support, you know, of Joe Biden and Joe Biden now is being subject to which, you know, Joe Biden, of course, is one of the biggest proponents of, you know, decimating due process on college campuses, especially under Title IX and, you know, and believe the believe women mantra of the Me Too movement. And so and as was, of course, Alyssa Milano. And she obviously was, you know, sat behind Kavanaugh at the Kavanaugh hearing. And um, but so so now she's getting she's getting just slammed left and right. Alyssa Milano for having, 
you know, now she's the one who's demanding due process for Joe Biden and saying we can't just believe, you know, these accusations um, by Tara Reid that, you know, he sexually assaulted her whenever, you know, however long ago, you know, that we had he he get he, you know, has the right to, you know, due process. And so now everybody's like, oh, so because it's Joe Biden. You know, well, he, he has yeah, the right. Well, it's to not. It's not because process. it's Joe Biden particularly. It's because that's my friend, right? Like even that's during the right. Me, even during the that's Me Too right. movement, at the height of the Me Too movement, there were people coming out like you know, so so and so gets accused or someone famous. You know, I, I I I I'm forgetting details, but like I saw this stuff happen and it was, oh well, that person didn't do it because they're my friend and I work with them and I know them and it's like, but you know the the. An hour before, they're like, believe right. all women and believe all victims. And uh, it's, right. it, it's absolutely ridiculous. And, okay, and here's the thing. And my take on this is if someone comes forward, you believe them to the extent that you take them seriously. You do a fair and honest investigation. That's right. Find out what happened. Okay, in the case of Kavanaugh and even in the case of Joe Biden, like I, I haven't even looked at the accusations. I, I don't. You know, I, I don't want to at this point, but right. you know, in the case of Kavanaugh at that point, the Republicans, what they should have done is, okay, you know what? We're going to have an investigation. We're going to put him on hold. We'll bring someone else up, right? And mm-hmm. have that investigation. Once you have an impartial investigation, if everything works out fine, then the next time a seat comes up, you can put him up again, right? Same thing with Joe Biden. You want to have an investigation, have one, but like, you know, don't waste your time on all this other crap. It's it's not going to be effective, and obviously they're not going to have one because of the election and all this. And you know, look at like with the whole Kavanaugh thing. Look what happened to Keith Ellison. Did anything happen to him? Right. You know, that's right. Keith Ellison was accused. Yeah, I mean, I remember yeah, that? There's all there's so many like, double standards all across the board. Both sides do it. Both sides play fast and loose, and it's just like, like the whole thing is. Um, again, when I speak to uh, James the other day, um, I, I brought this up. I said, it's, in 2001, you had 9/11. In 2000, when you had these people getting out of grad school and getting and, and you know getting out of doctorates, at the same time, the internet was becoming more ubiquitous. So you had the rise of the narrative, and that's when, because of the internet, because of information being readily available everywhere everything became narrative driven and that's where we are now it's i don't believe you because Mm -hmm. it goes against my narrative there's so few people willing to stop playing the narrative game and i mean i'm I'm sure i'm guilty of this i'm you know like everyone is the best thing you can do is be conscious of it and try to be aware of it and try to not do it but yeah it's 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 a little much now Mm -hmm. i just think um and like uh oh like Gretchen, and I think it is, it's so much about the cult of woke intersectional feminism. And I think in particular, what was done to me by the, in particular by the Yale administration, just shows that it is just, it is bigotry and stupidity. And it is a real threat to our civil liberties in the US. And and I know you're in Canada. Um, and, uh, and and in particular, a threat to due process, like Gretchen Mullen has talked about extensively, that the Yale administration immediately released these, including President Peter Salovey, immediately released these public statements in the in the a day or two, a day or two or three after uh, the May eighth, twenty eighteen incident, 
at Yale basically just condemning me as guilty of racial harassment without any due process whatsoever. The reason being is that that is a foundational premise of woke intersectional feminism, that if if a person of color, in particular the black person, accuses a white person of racism, that is a condemnation. That is a condemnation of racism. There is just, you know, and that to even to even demand for the for the person who's been accused for the white person who's been accused for them just like you said earlier in our conversation for them even to to demand due process to try to prevent to to, to try to present evidence to the contrary to even you know object you know and mm. and and to defy the accusation is in and of itself construed as evidence of your racism because you oh, okay. you are supporting the status quo system of oppression uh, but also you ask like let's just say you know you and i are talking and you said something you know something innocuous like uh oh it's a lovely day outside and i said well you know that's racist and you're like you know, right. which is, you know, it's obviously not racist and you're confused and you look at me and say, well how is that racist you asking me how that is racist is also proof of your racism because you're expecting me to do that's the right. emotional labor of explaining to you why that's racism and that's that, right and, i mean it's the whole thing is so rigged for you to fail i mean like the only way to win this game it's is not to play you. you know but you that's don't right. play this game like i mean okay look if a white family moves into a neighborhood, it's gentrification. If white families move out of a neighborhood, that's white flight. If you like a person of a of a certain race, that's fetishization. That's racism. If you don't like a person of a certain race, that's racism because you don't like them because they're that race. I mean, it's it, there's just no way you can win with this shit. And there's a right wing version of this nonsense as well. Like the Charlie Kirks and the Candace Owens of the world are just as bad as the woke intersectional garbage, and they're yeah. the two sides of the same coin. They're crazy people who have no who don't have don't use facts and have no bearing in facts in their lives. Like they they just that's, make things up as they that's go. That's right. That's and that's what I've said too. And actually, I I was I've been using the term instead of saying social justice warrior, I've been using the term moral outrage warrior. And the reason why I like to say moral outrage warrior, well, I I also feel like I'm now you know, on a <laughs> quote unquote crusade, so to speak, against the moral outrage industry. But I really feel like it's, you're right, it's both sides. It's these extreme elements on both sides, on both ends of the political spectrum, left and right. And that's why I call them, the, I call them the moral outrage industry and the moral outrage warriors and not just social justice warriors because I don't just want to condemn the extreme leftists who are participating in this nonsense, but also those on the extreme right who are participating. Yeah. Like in this I, nonsense. I, okay, you know, like, uh, like I said, you know, I mentioned James a couple of times, James and Lee, Helen Puckers, all them, they, they came up with the term grievance studies, right? Um, mm -hmm. That's and, right. And then also taking off Jehovah's Witnesses, I started calling these people left or right grievance witnesses because all they're doing yeah. is witnessing grievances everywhere they go. So they they become that's grievance right. witnesses. That's that's all they grievance are. Grievance witnesses, witnesses. I like that. Yeah, they're they're witnessing. Yeah, they're witnesses to the grievance. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, um, and they're they're proclaiming the the new kingdom to come of yeah. the woke intersectional feminism kingdom. Yeah. And, and only oh, the elect, you know, yeah, like the elect will get in, and only the elect, and you know. 
And that's why it's so, it was so, I mean, obviously, you know, and I, um, I, I talked about, you know, Jennifer Barty and the American Humanist Association, but uh, as I, the reason why I had mentioned um, Adam Lee of Daylight Atheism and also Annie Laurie Gaylor and Dan Barker of the Freedom From Religion Foundation is because, you know, well, in particular, well, Adam, I had considered him a close friend and you know what? Before May eight May um, eighth twenty eighteen happened, I I can't remember exactly how many months, but I had met him in New York City to meet his new baby boy, uh, just you know a, a few months prior to that. I'm sorry, I'm not gonna cry, I'm not gonna cry. <laughs> but um, and then also Annie Laurie Gaylor and Dan Barker, I considered them. I considered them family. And I even, when I came back from France after my brother's suicide, and then I was applying to, you know, master's programs in philosophy, um, I lived with them for a time. I lived with them for a time in Madison, Wisconsin. And that was the spring of 2011 when, do you remember, it was the it was the 99% movement and it was the Arab Spring and you know what happened in Wisconsin at the state capitol in Madison at that that um, that spring like was part of what kicked off the Arab Spring. It, you know it was part of it. It was a big part of it, and that was when there was the huge you know there were five hundred thousand people you know yeah. descended on the Madison state capitol to protest the the then Governor Scott Walker who was you know trying to get rid of the the public employee unions. It was amazing to be a part of that. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, think, I took video of all of it. I think 2011 spring, I think I was in Haiti at that point. Yeah, yeah so I don't know how much you even knew about what was happening. I, I didn't know what was going but, on in Wisconsin, but I mean, I'd heard about the Arab Spring and all that. Like, I was following that. That's right. Um, That's right. Well, but the, uh, the reason why I mentioned that is just like, well, I was going to say that um, it's just... It's it's just it's just even now it's it's hard it's hard for me to wrap my head around in particular like the betrayals like these are people who whom I regarded as family you know that I it, it it's hard to explain I mean I, I don't know if you've personally experienced this but you know, being stabbed in the back by someone whom you would have thought would have stood by your side until the bitter end, you know, and you, as you would have done for them. And I just, I can't really, it's really just hard to, it's hard to even explain what that feels like. And, but that the fact that woke intersectional feminism has so usurped that community and those organizations that these people who knew me intimately, who knew I would never engage in racist behavior in a million years, who knew me, who knew I, I had dedicated my life to fighting against oppression, that I was a deeply committed human and civil rights activist and a licensed attorney, people who knew me intimately, who knew me inside and out, and everything that I stand for and fight for, and they, 
I mean, Annie Laurie Gaylor and Dan Barker in particular and the Freedom From Religion Foundation, they didn't explicitly make the kind of derogatory public statements that say, you know, Jennifer Barty and the American Humanist Association did and that also that Adam Lee of Daylight Atheism did. But the fact that they did not, well, but they but they censored my essays. They took my essays down from their website, and they certainly did not stand up for me. And also, they, when they were approached by some of these woke intersectional feminists who were looking to, you know, coerce them into elevating them um, as personalities and figures in the movement, they they embraced that and actually um, FFRF, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, um, I know now we're in the middle of the corona apocalypse, but they had intended in what I think was supposed to have been their annual convention um, that was, I think, was supposed to have taken place sometime around now. They intended to give Sikivu Hutchinson, one of the woke intersectional feminism feminists that exploited the destruction of my life and career to elevate herself, they were going to give her a Feminist of the Year award. Everybody's getting Feminist of the Year awards for uh, for participating in the global vilification campaign against me. But that's the stuff with this thing, right? Like the like this this whole you know woke stuff, the the you know the critical theories, all these things. I call it like the strangler fig of ideologies because basically I don't know if you know what a strangler fig is. Yeah. Okay. So, but yeah, I mean, it's a tree that goes grows on the outside of another tree, ends up killing the host, and then you know, and, and that's what this stuff does. It it comes in, it it gets into an organization, and it just destroys it from the inside because it make all it I mean all it knows how to do is find problems, and so the first thing right. it does is it looks at its host and finds a problem in its host. And tears it apart. Everything that's been a, everything that it attaches itself to, dies. I mean, look at Evergreen mm-hmm. College. Look at all the schools where this stuff went on. I'm sure even Yale, even though Yale is like you know, a big school, it's an Ivy League, right? Like it's, it's got money, but they're, I'm sure their their admissions are dropping. Like Mizzou's admissions are dropping. I'm sure you could look at the same thing right. like Sarah Lawrence and Wesleyan and things like that. And like once this coronavirus thing hits, like sorry, and I, actually once it hits, but like once people start pulling back, I think a lot of people are going to notice, hey, I don't need a classroom. I don't need to pay, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to sit in That's the building. Right. Like, I can do this from home. And online learning is going to be, and I think a lot of these places are going to collapse. Like, this stuff is, it's, you know, so if it comes into your, okay, forget the political stuff, forget all this like, it's tearing apart knitting communities. Like I, for whatever reason, That's I started, right. I started following what That's it's doing right. in the knitting communities. It, it's I tear, saw that. It's tearing apart like hiking and and camping communities. Anything it gets attached to, it destroys. It, destroys. it, 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 it just takes it over. It's this stuff. And again, there's a right wing version of it. You can look at it. Um, there is. Uh, there was a good article. I'm trying to remember where it was. Uh, it was about right-wing postmodernism, and you know, people think postmodernism is just a left-wing thing. Like I said, the Candace Owens and the Charlie Kirks of the world, you know, even like someone like Dave Rubin, I, 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 I you know, don't have much time for him. Um, I think mm-hmm. that he is using this right-wing postmodernism, and and that's where, like, that's okay. Right now, we need expertise. We really need expertise in the world at this moment. Right. That's right. And this stuff, both left and right, has 
No one knows who to trust. No one knows who to believe. No one That's knows exactly right. You know, uh, everyone's using their narrative. When Trump first said, "Okay, we're going to ban flights from China," I don't think he went far enough. I think he should have done what Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore had done was like all travel canceled. You know, I, I think that's what he should have done, but whatever. Oh my God, that's racist! So he pulls back. I mean, it's it's this right. whole thing is all BS. It's you know like oh Trump wasted so much time. It's like no, you know what? You guys all wasted time. You guys all have your stupid narrative to follow. You pick up that script, and once you have that script, that's the only thing you can use. Right, that's yeah. right. And I've been telling I, I you are so exactly right. You and I, this is something that I've been I've been saying a lot on on Twitter in particular is that this is a serious problem because of what we're dealing right now with with this coronavirus pandemic because you look if 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 I know I'm telling people um, and oh, we kind of talked about this last time in the last um, podcast mm. about the you know the death of journalism and 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 what's going to maybe mm. replace it, because I've been saying you cannot if if you know if I know that the New York Times printed copious articles published copious articles about me that were nothing but lies, like if they would lie about that. If they would knowingly lie about that and destroy an innocent civil rights activist's life for moral outrage industry profit and gain, why they would lie about anything. How can I believe anything that's printed in the New York Times? And I've been telling people, do not believe anything that the New York Times says about this virus, yeah. that the CNN says, that MSNBC says. But I don't want to leave people bereft for a source of accurate information. And what I've been telling people to do is to go to Nicholas Christakis. He's been really active and he's been doing a wonderful job on his Twitter feed posting accurate information about the pandemic. And then someone said to me like, oh, thanks, Sarah. We're going to trust you and trust, you know, the public experts, that public health experts that you tell us to trust. And I said, look, I'm not saying that I'm an expert on public health experts. I'm just saying that I personally know Professor Nicholas Christakis from Yale and I know he's a person of integrity, and that's why I trust him. And I don't want to leave people bereft of a source for accurate information while I'm telling them to ignore everything in the fake news press. And I know you don't like the term fake news yeah. press. Well, no, well, like I said, whatever. I mean, like, I, 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 I use narrative-driven because I think that's what it is. I, I, because yeah. Yeah. It, it's... Because um, it's both sides. It, yeah, it is both sides. Yeah, it is it, both sides. And it's... I'm trying to, I, I, I think it was... Uh, I think it's Michael Malice who said this, and again, like I have some issues with him, um, but he said, uh, you know, the news does not lie. You know, like the news is factual, but it's not truthful, right? So they'll use the fact right. to spin right. their side. So they you know, you know, uh, hundred people get trapped, thirty people die, seventy people get saved. Oh, miracle, seventy people get saved. Oh, tragedy, thirty people die. Now it's it's the exact same fact. It's how you're spinning it, right? right. Uh, that's right. That's you know, so right. Like, and that, that's why I say narrative driven. I mean, like, whatever. I mean, like, I'm not going to argue about words. I'm not, you know, I don't think there's magic words where, the, the you know, the, if you say the right word in the right order, it has power, right? Like, you know, people of color right. instead of colored people, right? Like, you know, right, you know, right. You know, so it's like I said, I, I, 
know, like that's just my way of looking at it. It's like I think narr- narrative driven is uh, is more descriptive, but whatever. Right. Well, I I feel like oh wow. Um, have we really been we have we been going for like. Yeah, it's a couple uh, hours. Two I was, hours I, yeah, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask <laughs> probably, you like, uh, well, I, I'm gonna have to cut this short. Probably, so. I think this, yeah, seems like a, a good time to wrap it up. And I think something that, which I think is a nice um, next thing to say, mm-hmm. given what we've just been discussing, and a nice way to wrap up is that I just have been telling everybody that we just. I, and I do think it's true that a lot of people just kind of went along with the, you know, the vilification campaign against me. And even if they didn't really say anything, they certainly, you know, didn't speak up on my behalf. Even people who absolutely knew, you know, the truth about me and what had happened. And so I just want to say that, and this is something that people have been saying more and more and more, is that we have to stand up for our friends in particular when 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 the moral outrage mob and the moral outrage warriors on either side of the political spectrum you know come for them um we have we have to because i know people are terrified and that a lot of a lot of what people did or didn't do on my behalf in the past two years is because they were scared. They were really scared. They're scared that the, you know, the moral outrage mob is going to come for them next and they're going to get canceled next. And I understand that. And I understand that's a very human impulse, but we have to stand up, especially for our friends when, when the moral outrage mob comes for them, because they will come for you. Eventually they will, they will. And it's, okay, you know what, stand up for the principle, like stand up for your friends, obviously stand up for the people you know, that you know, like, okay, you know what, I know Sarah, she couldn't have done this, that's what you should do, but stand right. up for the principle, like. The like, principle I mean, of civil liberties yeah, and due uh, process, okay, that's I, right. I do not like Linda Sarsour, I think she's an awful person, I don't believe it, I, I, I think she's a liar, I, right. I can go on and on and on. She was being stopped. There, there's a group trying to stop her from coming into Canada giving a speech in Winnipeg somewhere. Now, I signed the petition to allow her to come in. I th- Absolutely. I, I think she lies. I think she's, you know, she spreads a horrible message. I don't have anything good to say about her. But I want her to come in, have her say, so that someone else can then have an intelligent argument against her. I, I don't want... That's right. You know, I, I don't want to make these people martyrs to free speech. I don't want to give them that, oh, look, see, they're, they're stifling me because everything I say is so important and so true. It's like, no, these people don't have That's anything... That's right. You know, let them... Like, sunshine is the best disinfectant. Let them... I completely you know. agree. Anyways, yeah. look, uh, if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, uh, what you got coming up, if anything, um, you know... Right. Yes. So, um, so, um, well, you already have, you know, please go to my, my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. You can just go on YouTube and search Sarah Brosh. Um, my first name is S-A-R-A-H and my last name is B-R-A-A-S-C-H. And, um, my, my blog. And if you also just want to go to at Sarah Brosh one, on Twitter, and I have basically everything listed there: my YouTube channel and my blog, and um, and of course my 
if you want to support my my legal fund and my efforts to restore you know civil liberties on college campuses and to stop the moral outrage industry, um, I under, obviously you know in the midst of a pandemic. It's going to be difficult to raise legal funds, but um, but I'm never going to stop, you know, fighting for for justice and um, uh, on behalf of everyone because this is certainly not just about me. It's a, it this is this is not going to stop unless we unless we bring it to an end. So thank yep. you. Yeah, and well, th- once again, thank you very much for coming on. And oh, it was my pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening.